is good to be with you again. Uh, just show of hands, who was at our missions dinner last night? Yeah, we had a great time. I think we had a little over 100 of us from our congregation at the dinner, and it was just an encouraging time to, to learn a little bit about what God has been doing in this church, what God is doing, what God will continue to do. And in some sense, we're going to just kind of carry the conversation on a little bit more this morning. And I just want to remind you all that we talked about missions at our book spot. Uh, you can't now not know where the book spot is, obviously. Um, we have this book. It's called Missions, How the Local Church Goes Global. And it's a really great practical way to think about how, how do, I just love what we talked about last night is, I think what's really neat about missions now, it's not just missionaries. We are thinking about missions in terms of the church. How do we as a church do missions together? So it's not just Kyle and, and Krista and the Haberchaks and the Kents and individual missionaries going out and we never think about it again. The question is how do we as a church do global missions? And so this is a great little read and it's a, a suggested donation price of $10. If you have that, great, put it in the box. If not, but you really wanna learn about it, just, just put whatever you have or just take one home and, and we wanna see this vision spread. So that's gonna be at our book spot. Well, it occurred to me um, that Tuesday night at community group, as I was sitting there with my, my community group and we were talking, that I, I inadvertently preached my Mission Sunday sermon last week without even realizing it, right? You know, we go, we're going through this series on discipleship convictions, and last week we asked the question, why make disciples? And I offered three answers, right? Anybody remember any one of those answers? What was the first answer? Why, why do we make disciples? It fulfills God's plan. Yeah, yeah. The second reason we make disciples is what? It rescues people. And then the third uh, reason we make disciples is because it glorifies God, right? So it, it fulfills God's plan. It rescues people. It glorifies God. That's why we make disciples. And so as we're sitting there in community group thinking about missions, so, so why do we do missions? Or why is missions important? Or why should we care? really insert any question about missions? And what's your answer going to be? Well, missions fulfills God's plan, it rescues people, and it brings glory to God. All right, so there, there was the sermon, right? Um, now, now, if you're thinking, oh, well, I was here last week, then does that mean I can go? No, that, that is not what I'm getting at, right? They're very similar because they really actually should be similar, right? Missions and discipleship, to Kyle's point, is the same kind of thing, isn't it? I mean, what's the mission? Make disciples, right? How do we go about making disciples? We got to make sure we're on mission, right? So it's the same kind of thing. So it stands to reason that a missions message is going to tag along beautifully into a series on discipleship. Now, I'm going to say this though, because I, I did preach that really my missions message last week. I'm actually going to preach the same message today, but in a radically different way okay? In other words, last week, uh, you're going to get to see what's on the cutting room floor today. And what I mean by that is, whenever a preacher preaches a sermon, you are getting maybe 50% of what they've actually put together. The rest ended up on the cutting room floor. So last week, I gave you the, the not the good 50%, today's the bad 50%. Last week, I, I gave you the kind of, the, the points to hang your hat on, 
But since it's the same message in theory, I want to kind of show you what's on the cutting room floor that made these points that it fulfills God's plan, it rescues people, and it brings glory to Him in a way that maybe you haven't thought about it before. And two psalms really inspired me and and, and literally helped me think that that's something we ought to do. The first is Psalm 7219. I mean, this is a great missions text. Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. Friends, that's a, that's a great passage, isn't it? That's a great passage. So the question we have to ask is, how's that going to happen? How does it happen that His glorious name is going to be blessed forever and the whole earth is filled with His glory? And that's what we're going to study tonight. We're going to study, or this morning, we're going to study a biblical theology of mission. And you say, oh, well, that sounds heady. It is, right? It, it, it is heady. It, this is deep stuff here, but you can hang with me. Secondly, because the Psalms tell us this. Psalm 111.2 says, great are the works of the Lord. What is greater than His name spreading and His glory filling the earth? What's greater than that? Great are the works of the Lord, and check this phrase out, studied by all who delight in Him. I think our church is a church that delights in the Lord. And so, studying a biblical theology of mission on a Sunday morning, far from being just a heady exercise of intelligentsia that you would avoid, you go, yeah, I want to know about what the Scriptures teach on this. So, what we want to do this morning is we want to look at the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, and we're just going to follow this one thread, this one thread through all of the Bible, and that thread is how does God bring His salvation to the ends of the earth? That's the thread we're going to follow this morning. I'm going to say, if you are a newer Christian, I know we have some of those, you're you're just going to drink from a fire hydrant. That's just the way, there's just no other way to do it. I would say sorry, but I'm not, because you're going to love it, right? New Christians are sometimes the best people to preach to, because they want to know everything, right? If you've been a Christian for a while, what I hope is that for you, some of the dots maybe connect a little more clearly, and so you can see the whys of why we do what we do. So I hope some of the dots get connected for you, people who've been Christians longer. If you're not a Christian and you're visiting today, I just want to say a lot of what I'm going to say, I get it, it's going to sound strange, it's going to sound foreign, and you're just not going to have the categories to track with me. But I hope you do because I hope what you get out of this is that you're going to realize why your Christian friend, why she or he is so passionate about Jesus, why they're always making a big deal about Jesus Christ. And I hope that this kind of answers why Christians in general think about sending missionaries everywhere. I know it's, it's not popular in our time and place to, they call it proselytize, right, proselytize and that kind of thing. But I hope after listening today, you, you at least be able to understand and appreciate, okay, this is why Christians send people to all parts of the globe. This is why it matters to them, okay? So this morning, um, I'm typically giving you a three-point sermon. I have 11 points this morning, so I need to get to it. All right, so we are going to start, uh, and I'm going to try and get you out of here at the same time. We are going to start in the beginning. We're We're doing a biblical theology, so we start where we start in the beginning, the very first chapters of the Bible. We have creation, and in creation, there's no such thing as mission. Mission doesn't exist, Why? Because in the beginning, worship does. 
Friends, the reason we have mission is because there is no worship. And in the beginning, there was wonderful worship. Man and God walked in harmony. It was beautiful. It was, I mean, literally Edenic. That's where we get the word from. There was harmony and full fellowship and delight and worship between man and God, the creation and man, and man with one another. There was no need for mission. But then quickly, Sin enters into the picture, and it all goes sideways, and all this harmony and this Eden is now lost quickly. But from the very beginning, we get a glimmer of hope in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Says, I, the Lord says, I will put enmity between you, he's speaking to Adam and Eve, between you and the woman, excuse me, he's actually speaking to the serpent and Adam and Eve, and he says, God says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What are we reading here? This is what scholars and theologians say. This is the proto-gospel, the first example of the gospel message of hope. And he says to the enemy, there's going to be enmity between your offspring and the offspring of humanity. And you will bruise his heel, but he, this offspring of humanity, he will crush your head. So at the very beginning, we see this is the verse that then necessitates mission because it all went sideways, to quote the poet John Milton, paradise lost now needs to be regained, and mission begins. And guess who the first missionary is? It is God himself. We read from Genesis 4 through 11, God is chasing humanity. He is looking. He's bringing his message to humanity. And humanity is not just lost, like Milton said. Humanity is, is deliberately running from God, right? Lost implies a sense of uh, you're, you're not culpable. You're just something happened to you and you're wandering away. Humanity, for those chapters 11 through, uh, 4 through 11 of Genesis, it is clear humanity is not just lost. Humanity is arrogantly running and rebelling against God till it gets to its climax in Genesis 11 where we build a tower to invade heaven and God has to put a stop to it in the Tower of Babel. But then in chapter 12, we see that there is a man who responds to God's call. There's a man by the name of Abram, and he hears God's call, and he heeds what the Lord has to say in Genesis 12. He would respond to God's call, and in faith, Abram leaves his father. He leaves his country just trusting the word of the Lord, saying that this will be a blessing to others. And so we see right at the very beginning, the Christian life, the mission life is a life of leaving. Abraham leaves what is comfortable, leaves what is familiar to go someplace because God has to do something and it's not going to work in Ur of the Chaldees. Abraham has to leave to this land called Cana that he's never seen. He's never seen a travel brochure. There's never been a timeshare here. He hasn't been tempted by, hey, there's great coastal lands and hill property in Jerusalem. He just says, go. And Abraham says, okay. I will leave. We see that all that, that, that is part of missions today, that we leave. If I can pull back two weeks ago, what does a disciple do? What is a disciple? It's one who leaves, and we see that right here. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, when God has this conversation with Abram, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. 
and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham believes and he obeys and he goes forth. But it's not for hundreds of years later Hundreds of years later, if you're reading the book of Genesis, you have to realize how much time flashes. Abraham takes up basically 12 through 18, and then we, we hear about Abraham in chapters 19, 20, 21, and then, then, then we jump into Exodus. You've got to realize centuries have passed since those chapters. Centuries have passed, and Abram's little family turns into a great growing people but they are people in bondage, a people in slavery, a people without hope, a people in despair. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, you see God brought Abram and his family, Abraham and his family to Egypt, and it was under the best settings, but soon the Egyptians had forgot about what the Jews had done, the Hebrews had done, the family of Abraham, and then oppressed them. Centuries later, and we read this in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And so God raises up Moses to deliver this family, Abraham's family, this man who answered the call to leave, to be a blessing to others. Moses is raised up to deliver this family, the descendants of Abraham, to become a nation. They become the nation of Israel, but they're not just any old nation. They're not like the Amorites or the Hittites or the Jebusites or the Chaldeans or the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Egyptians. This nation has a mission. It's made very clear when they come out and they are in front of the Lord Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, God says to them, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the people of Israel. Notice in red, they're to be a kingdom of priests. They are serving a mediatorial role. Priests represent God to humanity. In, in, in that polyistic culture, the priests represented the gods to humanity and humanity to the gods. Well, the people of God would do the same thing. They would be these priests, all of them, not just a select few, but all of them that represent God to humanity and humanity to God, and they would be a holy nation. So right there, we're hearing hints about them. They're not, God's work is not just, I'm going to grab a little bit of Amorite here and grab a, a collected a group of individuals. No, 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 no. God says, I'm making a people. There's going to be a coherency to them. They're going to be a kingdom of priests, and they're a holy nation, a set-apart group of people with distinct laws and customs and the way they do things. And this nation grew and prospered, and then became the kingdom that we read about in the uh, second part or the middle part of the Old Testament. David, God was so pleased with David, this descendant of Abraham, that God promised David, one of your own descendants, I will set up his throne and he will be on that throne forever. Second Samuel seven thirteen. When your days are fulfilled, speaking to David, and you lay down with your fathers, 
lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so we see from this Abraham to this people, to this nation, to now this monarchy that becomes a very powerful monarchy. Solomon, David's son, who became king after him, who was one of the wisest and greatest kings of antiquity. Listen to what this one few verses in 1 Kings 10 says about Solomon. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his presence, articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. Okay, so let's take a pause here. What are we seeing in this real quick flyby of the Old Testament? We are seeing Abraham, a man who responds to the call of God calling him to leave everything behind and go someplace he's never seen or never been, not necessarily so he's blessed, but so that he can be a blessing for others, a blessing for the nations. Abraham believes God, that God is making a new people, like the people we once were way here to the left, or to the left, creation, that God's making this new people and he's taking them to a new place. Even though he doesn't know all the details, he goes. Abraham's people become this, this great nation where, where they are brought together, and that's where they're constituted as a nation. They're no longer just this huge family. They're constituted as the nation of Israel, a nation of priests to represent God to humanity and vice versa. What they were to do was as a nation, they were to show the world what life is like under the laws and commands of God. As a nation, they were to be a, a witness to all the other nations what life was like under God's rule. As a matter of fact, in, in Deuteronomy 4.8, God says, what nation is there like you that has statutes and laws so righteous like the law I've presented to you? Now, they weren't missions-minded the way we think of it now, right? God was still making His people and putting all the infrastructure into place. But their collective witness to the world was to go out so that people would say, there's something really different about these Hebrews. They have a radically different life, and there's something radically different about their God. And while they weren't going out so much because God was still constituting His plan, People were watching, and if you read the Old Testament, always track how it's happening. People are coming in. You had Ruth, the Moabitess, Moabitess, right? You had Rahab, the Gentile prostitute. You have all these people in the Old Testament, and the narrative is the same. You Jews are different. Your God is different, and I want in on that. And so God is creating this people to represent Him in the world. And then with David... David kind of begins the monarchy. I know it's Saul, but Saul was a really false start. So it's really David. He begins the monarchy, and the monarchy reaches its zenith in his son Solomon. And, and you kind of get the feeling, if you're reading the Old Testament with this thread in mind, you're like, you're like, you're thinking, 
maybe Solomon is the promise. Maybe that kingdom is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Because what did he promise Abraham? All the nations will be blessed. And did you track in 1 Kings? All the nations are coming to Solomon to be in his presence, to hear his wisdom. I mean, that's a fulfillment almost of what, what God promised Abraham. But that wasn't it. You see, the, they, they, the monarchy, was to be a national picture, a picture to the nations of what it's like when there's a godly king and how people are blessed because of that godly king, not just God's own people, but anyone who would come to him would be blessed. And it's epitomized by the visit of the queen of Sheba, who, who is probably in modern-day Yemen right now, who comes to Solomon and she says, I have heard the stories but they pale in comparison to what I've witnessed here. How blessed are the people of the Lord. So, so the monarchy is this picture on a national scale. It's not, some, it's not an individual family. It's not some tribal uh, nation group. It is this monarchy, a civilization that is proclaiming this is life under God's rule. What a blessing it is. In short, the thread is that God created a distinct people to represent what life would be like under His rule, to be witnesses to the world. Friends, I'm going to jump forward a little bit here. If, if you're thinking, well, that kind of sounds like what the church is supposed to be, you're on track. We're not much different. The mission has not changed from the Old Testament. The thing that's changed is the forms but the function's identical. Friends, this is why I make a big deal about the local church. Because we are living, we're enmeshed in a culture of individualism. And do you see in Scripture, God's not interested in saving individuals. Yes, He is, right? Because individuals constitute what? A people. But God's plan always said, I'm making a people. There's no Lone Ranger Christianity now any more than there was a Lone Ranger Judaism then because God has a plan. We don't get to make it up. We don't get to choose what parts we like and don't. We just got to find our place, and we got to fulfill it. But as so often is the case, it's easy to lose sight of the mission for whatever reason. I think one of the things that's derailing us is our autonomous impulse. I think that's really crumbling missions work. I can't tell you how... Mm, I forget what conversation it was. I don't know if it was the Haberchacks or the Normans. They're in my kitchen. And there was a concern that, well, what happens if we go and you're gone? And they're like, as a pastor, I move on, right? And that one question made me start thinking, boy, that's probably why so much missions is collapsing because so many churches forgot what they're supposed to be about. And partly because so many pastors are interested in building careers. They're not interested in building congregations. So I said, look, it doesn't matter. If, if Rick Warren needs someone to take over Saddleback, uh, don't call me. Not, not that that would ever, ever happen, right? I'm not interested because I'm about building a congregation. So you go and I'll stay and I'll, I'll man the fires. I will be here. So you go. Friends, the reason I think we'd have, we'd have more missionaries going out if they knew congregations were about being what the Bible was about, about being a people of God with those metrics of success, not numerical growth, not big buildings, but faithfulness to the gospel, pursuit of holiness, fighting sin, 
that gives them confidence to say, yeah, I'll go out there then, knowing you guys are holding the line here. So Israel forgot that. They forgot the mission. They got off track. Their success and their all that God blessed them with. This is the dangerous thing, guys. I've been reading through Chronicles in my daily Bible reading, First and Second Chronicles, and I've been sharing this with elders and others. I cannot tell you how many times I've read in the Chronicles how God would establish somebody, would do amazing things, and then the next line was a variation of, and they forgot the Lord. It is not persecution we should fear. And, and so, uh, my, my point simply is this. We've got to be on guard against the successes, about being so comfortable and, and, and comfort so often. Read the Bible leads to spiritual apathy. We saw that all through Israel, and they got off mission. And so God raised up prophets. So follow me. We went from the Old Testament, went from the first five books of the Old Testament to the historical books, the monarchy, now the prophets. God raised up prophets, and their primary message was to say, you are off mission. Oops, right there. You are off mission. Get back on mission. It's not about establishing and increasing your boundaries, your political boundaries, your national boundaries. It's about being a witness of Yahweh to the world. Stop compromising to be like the nations around you. Be different. It's not how you are like the world that makes you a effective. It's how you're different from the world that makes you effective when you are loving the Lord. So he raised up the prophets, and one prophet in particular, a prophet by the name of Isaiah, he wrote in his book, the book of Isaiah is amazing. It's like, it's like the whole message of the Bible crammed into that one book. There's particular chapters for you note-takers, chapters 42, chapters 49, chapter 50, and then chapter 52, verse 12, all the way through the end of chapter 53. So let me say that again real quick. Chapter 42, chapter 49, chapter 50, chapter 52, verse 12, to the end of 53. Now, why did I make a big deal of that? Isaiah brings in some character that is that, that's, that if you have Jewish friends, talk to them about the servant of the Lord in Isaiah, and they're going to be like, oh, I don't want to talk about that. Or, well, that's Israel. They have these odd explanations. Isaiah begins to describe a servant of the Lord that actually fulfills everything that Abraham, the nation, and the monarchy was supposed to fulfill, but did not. In other words, a perfectly obedient servant who was also a witness uh, to the world and a blessing to the nations. I'm just going to share one verse from Isaiah's uh, servant passages. Now the Lord says, and I just got to say that when you're reading those, here's the dynamic. It is God talking to Isaiah, proclaiming about the coming servant of the Lord. And so who is actually speaking gets a little bit hard to track because simultaneously Isaiah is also preaching to the nation. I just want to say that. But the message of what comes out is clear. Now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him. Jacob is another term that refers to Israel, right? Because Jacob was one of the patriarchs. Jacob was uh, one of Abraham's son, and from Jacob came the 12 tribes of Israel. So sometimes you read Jacob, it's referring to the man Jacob. Sometimes it's referring to the people of Israel, people of Israel here. To bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. Verse 6, he says, 
It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I'll explain this a little bit. I will make you as a light for the nations. Why? That my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So verse 6, what he's saying is, I'm going to raise you up, but it's too small a thing. I don't, I'm not satisfied with the servant just bringing back Israel, bringing back Jacob to faithfulness. No, 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 no. This servant is going to be a light to all the nations. Why? So that my salvation goes to the ends of the earth. See, that's, that's, what, that's the interpretation of that. He's not belittling the work. He's saying, for you to just save Israel, that's too light a thing. I want more. I want all the nations. This servant is the key because, as I said, not only does he fulfill what Israel was supposed to be, the perfect, obedient son, but also the witness to the world, but more than that, the vehicle by which Sinners, transgressors, Jew or Gentile could be blessed by God. So he simultaneously fulfills what Israel was constituted to do and explodes that into spreading it through the world. Friends, track with me the stream. Starts with, it starts in Genesis, right? But then it starts again with this Adam, one, one man, or excuse me, Abraham, one man, and then it spreads out to his family, spreads out to the nation, right? Spreads out to this monarchy that proclaims it to all the nations, and then it goes to its widest form in the servant songs, to all transgressors and any sinner. That's how this flow is going out. So Israel's role of world mission was forfeited through disobedience, and now it's transferred to this mysterious servant that the prophet Isaiah was writing about. Guess who that is? Jesus. He he is, I mean, we know because we have the New Testament. You cannot read the servant of the Lord passages, the servant songs are called in Isaiah, and interpret them any way unless you know the Gospels. This is why it it stumps my Jewish friends because they have no explanation for this mysterious suffering servant who is the king. So what we need to know is this. So Old Testament theology of missions, it all kind of focuses, it culminates in Jesus from the Old Testament. And New Testament theology of missions, guess what? It spreads forward out from Jesus. What this means is all missions, whether it's across the street or across the globe, is fueled by the gospel. The New Testament missions movement, which includes all of us in this room, regardless of whether you're one of the international ones or not, the New Testament missions movement is to explain the event of the cross and what it means and how we are to respond to it. That Jesus is the Messiah who fulfills all the prophetic words. He actually is the word of God himself. So he's a better Isaiah. He's a better Jeremiah. He's a better of of all the prophets. He is the true king of Israel and of all the nations. So he is a better David, a better Solomon. He is the true priest. He is the true sacrifice. So a better Exodus. He is the one who left his father's home for a country that would reject him. He is a better Abraham. He is the one that reconstitutes humanity, a better Adam, and he is the one that takes us to a place better than Eden, a new heavens and earth. 
And so the whole Old Testament story, the whole mission, finds its locus in Jesus Christ, and then it spreads out from Him from there on in the New Testament. And so what you see in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I listed them, um, that's not canonical order, that's in order of the kind of uh, global missions-mindedness, the way we understand missions, uh, that they have. So you have Matthew talks a little bit about that, Mark a bit more, John even more, Luke Acts really talks about Jesus and how God's mission breaks through the ethnic constraints of, of Israel and the spiritual constraints of Judaism. And it just shows that God's mission has all along been for the entire world in fulfillment to Abraham's blessing particularly six major steps in the book of Acts, shows God's mission expanding. Friends, these are not arbitrary, cool stories. Acts chapter 2, Pentecost and the gift of the Holy Spirit, and all these believers speaking in different languages, different tongues. This is not so we can have a charismatic movement. The point of Acts chapter 2, can you think of another point in Scripture, I alluded to it today, where God used language to stop something? Yes. Acts chapter 2 is God's way of saying, do you remember way back when you so arrogantly thought you could invade my throne and I spread you all out by confusing your languages? Well, I'm, the gospel transcends that and I'm bringing you all back in. And all these people started proclaiming God in languages and the witnesses say in the text, what in the world? They're talking about the glories of God in my language and these Jews do not know this language. Acts 2 was significant to say God is reversing what happened in Genesis 11. God scattered people because of their sin, but he's bringing them back because of the gospel. And then in Acts chapter 8, just a few chapters after that, the gospel goes to the Sumerians, who you remember in the historical books, betrayed. They were part of the people of God, and they turned their backs on God and became the Sumerians. And God said, no, this gospel's for you too. It's not just for Gentiles out there. It's for betrayers and traitors like you and rebels like you. And then the conversion of Paul right after that, right? The conversion and commission of one of the brightest theologians who, guess what, is also their very first missionary, right? And then you have right after that Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and his whole household and his servants, they're all Gentiles, and they believe the gospel. The Spirit falls upon them, and they start to realize, man, this is something that we can't control. And then you have Paul's first missionary journey, Acts 13, 14, and then it climaxes in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. What's the whole argument about? What in the world are we going to do? There's all these Gentiles who are, who are becoming Christians. They're believing in Christ. They're showing forth the fruit of the Spirit. Oh, we figured it out. This is what Paul, what God was talking about to Abraham. This is the blessing that's coming to all nations everywhere. And now there are many passages we could look at, but just look at one. Paul beautifully sums this up in Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Okay, he could be referring to Exodus 20, where we get the Ten Commandments. He could be referring to the first five books where we have the law, right, called the Pentateuch. But I think he could be referring to Genesis 2.17, the first law, when God said what? Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We broke that law. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. What was the curse? You will die, right? How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who's hanged on a tree 
so that, remember what I taught you about these kind of, these conjunctions, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, Genesis 12 to 17, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Friends, what you need to see is the entire New Testament is just repeating the Old Testament storyline of God's mission to restore humanity. I want to prove that to you real quick. There's so many passages we could go to, but look at 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Does that sound familiar? We, we just saw a very similar passage to this. Does anybody remember what it was? Anyone want to throw out the... Come on, somebody knows the answer. Exodus, I heard someone say Exodus, that's right. Exodus 19, 5 and 6, when God brought the people out of bondage and said, I'm going to constitute you as a nation, this is what you are. This is what you're supposed to do. Who's Peter writing to? Is he writing to just Jews? Mm -mm. Peter's writing to the churches that have been scattered through persecution. And what does Peter do? He uses the exact titles very similar. We've just changed the translation from Exodus 19 to Christians today. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's what he said in Exodus 19. You're my people, my possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Here's a historical commentary. Once you were not people, but now you are God's people. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Friends, these are almost identical terms that God gave to us, that he gave to Israel when he started in full force this mission to redeem humanity. Except unlike the Old Testament that was looking forward to what God might do, we look back to what God in Christ already did. which we read about in the final book of the Bible, which is the book of Revelation. The new place that Jesus leads us to, a new people in a new Eden, not just a restored Eden, a better Eden. The Bible calls it, Revelation 21, 22, the new heavens and the new earth. And in the end, like at the beginning, there will be no missions. Sorry, Alan, missions committee, you will be disbanded. No need for any of that, why? Because again, the reason missions exist is because worship doesn't. And here at the end, worship will exist, so missions won't. Just like at the end, we will be in total, friends, think about that, perfect harmony and fellowship with God, with other people, with the creation, with yourself. It is, it's mind-blowing. Now, we've gone from creation to recreation, from Eden to the new heavens and a new earth, from the shadows of prophecy in the Old Testament to the clear light of history in the New Testament. But there is one last slide that's missing, isn't there? Right? And that's today. That's us. We're not in Revelation 21, 22. That's not for us. We went from past, ancient past, and just went all the way now into the future. Here's the last slide for it. This is us right here. This is where you and I are located. And we have a choice to make. We have a choice to make. To forget, like ancient Israel did, like so many do today, and drift off in a spiritual apathy, 
or useless comfort and ease. Friends, to amuse and entertain ourselves until it's too late or we're too old to do any good. Or we can choose to double down and get serious about the mission like so many have and so many are. That's the choice we have to make. Last night, I quoted William Carey, he's the father of modern missions. He, he kind of started this revival, in, at least within Protestantism, of going into the mission field in 1793. He took his young family for four decades, never came home, died in India. He was talking to a group of friends before he left, and he likened missions to rappelling down into a dark cavern. And he said, I can descend deep into the darkness so long as someone holds the rope. And one of his best friends, Andrew Fuller, who never went to the mission field with Carey, held the rope for Carey and for hundreds of others as he started one of the first organized missions, movements, and mission centers. Friend, we, we heard last night and this morning from a couple of our brothers and sisters, and we have some sitting with us today, you'll see them out in the palm court, who are on the other side of that rope. And there are more, right? There are more. I'm just talking about our missions committee. And by God's grace, there will be more, even from our monks, our own here at Christ Community Church. We have to decide. This is just the reality. I've been a Christian now for 25 years, and I've been a pastor for 20 of those 25 years. And I've seen this. You will either lead a life, a gospel-centered mission or you're going to lead a self-centered mission. You cannot do both. You will either lead a gospel-centered mission, or you will be on a self-centered mission. And you can be a Christian while doing that. We have to decide. So let me conclude. Let me conclude by offering six practical things. Uh, I'm going to go through them quickly. That you can do that will ensure both that you lead a gospel-centered mission and you do a good job of holding the rope. And I got some of these from our missionary friends from our church by themselves. Um, and so let me read them to you. This first one, none of them would say, so I'm going to say it loudly. Give money sacrificially. I'm going to break down each part of that phrase, all right? Give, it's an imperative, it's a verb, it's a command. I can't command that. I think God's word can. Give. Cash, money, whatever it might be, financial sustenance, stocks, real estate. I mean, there's so many ways people can give now. I, you talk to our finance committee. So give, it's a command from Scripture. Financial sustenance or whatever they need. Sacrificially. People always ask me this. Well, how much am I supposed to give? I don't mean just to missions, but to, to the Lord. Am I supposed to give 10% because, you know, that's the tithe. But then in the Old Testament, they had all these other taxes. And, and I say, look, 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 look. Give sacrificially. Honestly, some people can give 10% and they don't even miss it, right? So if that's just the arbitrary line, then they're not really worshiping God. Some people could not give 10% at all. The point is, give to where you feel it, friends. Give to where it dents your lifestyle. Give to where you got to reconsider vacations, cars, clothes, entertainments, upgrading your phones. Give to where you actually feel, oh, this stinks. But the aroma of sacrifice is beautiful to my Lord. 
give money sacrificially. That one came from me, not from them. So don't give them the, what we say in Hawaii, the stink eye, okay? Um, number two, pick a missionary or an organization that we support and pray for them daily. Do it. Pray for them daily, right? Easy one. Three, maybe you can do this with a community group. Uh, adopt one of our member missionaries and, and write to them. Send them letters. Let them know, hey, man, I'm holding the rope. I am holding the rope for you right here. Send them care passage, packages. Find out what the real person likes, not just the missionary person. What I mean by that is we had some missionaries visiting, and we said, well, what can we do for you? And they felt compelled to give really spiritual answers. And I said, hey, knock it off. Come on. What do you miss? Reese's Pieces cereal. <laughs> so what do you do? You send them boxes of Reese's Pieces cereal, right? Because they're human beings. Care packages, emphasis on the care. Adopt one with a community group. Four, this one was, came from one of our missionaries and it was so good, it came from a missionary. He said, encourage the sent ones to stick it out. So often they'll be discouraged and they may contact you and you want to help them and you want to comfort them and you'll say, man, it's hard doing what you did. No one will think less of you for coming back. Come on back. This missionary said, encourage them to stick it out. Help them to pray through it. Help them to persevere. Help them to stay to the post. Tell them, I will hold the rope, but I need you on the other side. Encourage them lovingly, not, not legalistically, but love them to stay out there. Right? Fifth, this was another one that was a good one from our missionaries. Books. They're not going to go down to the Rejoice Christian Book Center and just buy something. They don't have that, right? Send, now, this you need to be careful. In certain countries, don't send them Christian books because that outs them as a, as a missionary, as a Christian, and that can get them in trouble. But what you need to do is connect with them. Hey, are there resources? Can I, can I send you books? One said, I need Christ-centered, gospel-centered books that help my marriage, help my parenting. I need theology books. I need reference books. When I preach, I need some tools to prepare. Send them books, recommendations. Find out how you can bless them that way. And then finally, use some of your vacation time to go visit them. Oh, some of you love that kind of stuff. Like you, I mean, if you want like survivor adventure, go visit Brent, Erica, and the kids. I mean, you want to live that, that adrenaline junkie life? Go visit them, right? That, that's not for me, right? Uh, go visit the Normans in Japan. Go visit the Kents in France. That almost sounds like you can't say go. That is still missions, right? There's Randy and Ken, Jan, they still there. Yeah, so you visit them in France. Yes, it's France. It's kind of like a vacation, but make it a mission, right? Do that. Use some of your vacation time right? And, and, and use some of your finances and say, I'm holding the rope. I want to go from Christ Community Church, and I want to love and pour out for these guys. I want to help the hoags. I want to help whoever. There's are six practical ways we can do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just, we just kind of touched on the surface of what the Bible says, a biblical theology of mission, but it is enough for now. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a missions-minded church, our time is so short. Our time is so short. We do not have time left. Help us not get distracted and entertained and amused while the world burns. Help us to see, yeah, that may not make us the most popular people, but Lord, help us to see this world the way you see it, but also not just the, the doom and gloom, but the joy and the hope, the restoration. Help us to be a congregation that burns to see Christ made great. And we'll thank you for it in his name. Amen.
Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.